This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by our editor-in-chief, Mark Alley. And I'm going to reverse things and say I'm not having a precious moment. I'm having a precious week because I love this warm weather. It was in the mid-90s yesterday. It was just awesome. And the day before, and the day before. And the day before, and the day before, <laughs> exactly. I have also had a great week because of the weather. And I also think it's like amazing, Mark, because it completely coincided with like our holiday weekend. And that was even more remarkable. There you go. We didn't have to be in the office. So speaking of people who didn't get a holiday weekend, that would be our guest today. Exactly. Who is our guest? His name is Wyatt Graham, and he is the executive director of the Gospel Coalition Canada. Hey, Wyatt. Thanks for having me. Are you jealous of us for not getting a vacation day? Um, I think we have other vacations that we can make up for, so. <laughs> I wonder who has more federal holidays, Canadians or Americans? I would guess Canada, but to be honest, I have no idea. I don't have any idea, too. I know that Americans are, like, bad at taking holidays, or taking <laughs> vacation time in general, though. One of my favorite Canadian holidays, I don't know if it's a holiday or it's just a day, Boxing Day, is it? Oh, yeah. That's kind of like your Black Friday, but less intense. Okay. It's the day after Christmas. Right, right. Why is it called that? I think you gave gifts traditionally on Boxing Day, not Christmas. So you might box up the gifts and give them away. Yeah. But other Canadians will hear this and know that I'm wrong and use Wikipedia and call me out. So (laughs) it's something like that. Fair enough. We didn't call you on here to be an expert on, you know, your own country after all. (laughs) So don't worry about it. (laughs) All right, Mark, why is Wyatt on here with Uh, us today? Wyatt's on this episode of uh, Quick to Listen because of Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, a psychology professor at the University of Toronto, has suddenly become a phenomenon and therefore one of the most controversial public intellectuals of our time. His book, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos, has surged onto the bestseller list, including the number one nonfiction book on Amazon. Uh, But even before the publication of the book, his star had been rising rapidly due to the popularity of many YouTube videos that feature his lectures and TV and podcast appearances. Uh, Though Peterson is hardly a Christian and may not even be a theist by his own admission, he has been called by many, quote, the gateway drug to Christianity, end quote. New York Times columnist David Brooks, who notes that some people believe Peterson is one of the most important public intellectuals of our time, says this about Peterson's appeal. In his videos, he analyzes classic and biblical texts, He eviscerates identity politics and political correctness, and, most important, he delivers stern fatherly lectures to young men on how to be honorable, upright, and self-disciplined, how to grow up and take responsibility for their lives. So anyone with that sort of message will have his share of critics, which Peterson certainly does. Some react to two or three of his statements or dimensions of his ideas, but it's been my experience as a person who's been following Peterson for some months now that it's not just philosophers, but Christian reviewers themselves who seem to have, sometimes whether they're appreciative or not, they offer critiques that are really the most substantive. So that's why I'm, I'm anxious for us to have a conversation about that today. Peterson is an intellectual and cultural phenomenon. Every thinking Christian needs to be aware of, I think. 
And in this episode of Quick to Listen, we'll try to unlock Peterson's message and appeal. So before we get into our discussion today, which, by the way, I think that Mark has kind of underplayed just how controversial this person is, which is a- another big reason why we're having this discussion on the show, because we know, you know, that we'd like to talk about controversy here on Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. So, Mark, what is an article that you want to kind of flag for so, our listeners? Yeah, a, a good article in the June issue that we actually featured just a, sm- a short sidebar on Jordan Peterson. It's the entire articles on men's ministry in the church and how it's being rethought, redone in our time. And that's been an ongoing interest of mine for decades now, as I've watched church after church after church attract two-thirds of three-fourths women. And uh, why is that? Why isn't Christianity more appealing to men? What is it that the church—I don't think it's the Christian message by any stretch. I do think it's the way we do church sometimes that is uh, less less interesting to men. So it's one of the reasons I'm interested in Peterson is because of his appeal to men, but it's one of the reasons I've been, had a longer-term interest in men's ministry and how we do it. You did not write this article, though. We had, did a reported no, piece No, exactly. On it. Yeah. It was a reported piece on what, what new ministries are, are, are doing and how effective they are. Cool. So it's kind of a parallel piece to what we're talking about today. And I'm positive that many of the things that we talk about in that particular story are going to come up in our conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you would like to read this article or read our June issue, you can do that by becoming a subscriber. And you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen orderct.com slash quick to listen, and you will be able to access that article in our print publication and also on our website. All right. So, Mark, I guess it's a little hard to do a gut check on this, but nevertheless, when you hear the words Jordan Peterson, what is that immediate reaction that you have? It'd probably be better to do a gut check on when I first heard him. That'd be more interesting. I heard one one or two of his uh, non-biblical lectures, but I was listening to a series of lectures he gave on the opening chapters of Genesis. And uh, what fascinated me about him was he's just an interesting person to listen to, but he brings to bear evolutionary biology and Jungian psychology and Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn. They're all falling out of his mouth as he's trying to explicate the opening chapters of Genesis, some of which his exegesis was absolutely horrid, (laughs) and some of it was these flashes of brilliance of insight. So anybody who does stuff like that, who pulls on multiple disciplines, to try to come at a biblical text freshly, I, I, I want to give him a listen to, and I just, I just found that a great way to begin, even though I recognize as a Christian that there were serious areas of disagreement. The first time I heard Jordan Peterson mentioned was on this podcast when you mentioned that one of your precious moments was listening to Jordan Peterson. I did not know who you were talking about. I basically was like, okay, I don't know who that is. I guess that was my first reaction. Now my reaction would just be maybe like, everyone, please take a breath. So Jordan Peterson inspires a lot of both breathless adoration and fans from people who really love him to to kind of a superstar hero level and also seems to provoke an amount of incredibly breathless critique by people who have found his ideas repulsive. And I would hope that this podcast can be thought-provoking to both sides today as we try to get further into this argument. Yeah, I'd agree with that in terms of the breathlessness of the pros and the cons. It's just amazing. He just he is a person who divides people at this point. All right, Wyatt. You're not Jordan Peterson, but you are here to help us make sense of him. So I'm excited that you're here. You tell us about who Jordan Peterson is a little bit more deeply than how Mark has and what, what his background is. Yeah, so Jordan Peterson is a University of Toronto professor. 
who is a clinical psychologist, or I guess he was a clinical psychologist. Now he's sort of become a public intellectual. He's a Canadian from Western Canada, from Alberta, where actually I would probably say my home is from too. So he kind of comes from this rural Canadian setting, maybe akin to Texas in the United States. And it seems like he has become something of a, I don't know, like an intellectual rock star all over Twitter, all over social media. Um, Mark gave that David Brooks quote where some people are saying that he's the most influential public intellectual today, which could be true. So that's kind of the big picture of who he is. I think it's really important for our audience to know kind of how he came into the mainstream. I think the big thing was in 2016. So at University of Toronto professor, there was something called the C-16 bill that was going to be an amendment to the Canadian Human Rights Act. And it would add gender expression and identity to the act. So you could not discriminate against those things. And Jordan Peterson came out and said, look, I don't think this is a good amendment. I don't think this is helpful. I think this will actually create problems in Canada because it'll mean that I'm compelled to use words like z or zer. And if I don't use those words for someone's preferred gender pronoun, I could be punished and possibly go to jail. So when you make a stand like that, especially in, in Canada, uh, that people listen. And I think, actually, it was you, Morgan, who said that he's divi um, dividing people. That's true. There's division already there. Some people were upset at him because why wouldn't he use these gender-inclusive pronouns? Uh, why would he be against this human rights amendment? And others really loved him because they thought he was standing up for, uh, for free speech. So I think that's really where he came into the, the public sphere, and that's where he became very, very popular. And from, from there, his YouTube channel, his public speaking events, doing podcasts, all these sorts of things, he has just become more and more popular. And I guess that's why he's the topic of conversation on this podcast today. And I should say, just to, to, on the way to helping us understand Peterson in more nuanced ways, is people they assume because of his stand on this issue of language and gender preferences that he is against using the preferred gender preferences of any given group. In actual fact, when he's talking with people in those groups, he uses their preferred genders. His main thing was he didn't think the government had a right to insist that he do that. And that would be a, yeah. a distinction he would make. Going back to the divisive thing about that is that it depends how you were trying to, to read that situation, right? I think that many of us would agree that critics of that stance did not want to take that insistence at good faith, that he would be willing to use that, that he was just kind of saying like, oh, the government is going to compel me to do this and we should oppose it on those measures. And actually, a part of his background that might be helpful for that would be his just visceral reaction against totalitarianism in the 20th century. If anything, he, does, he himself overreacts to is any sign that totalitarianism is getting its foot in the door. He is, the, he is one of the quickest to say, this is a this could lead to bad things. Yeah. What do you what do you make of the fact, Wyatt, that we'll often hear Peterson talk about Marxism, for instance? I, mean, I think currently that word's thrown around a lot and not defined. I think when he uses it, he actually knows what he's talking about because he's done the research. I think when people hear that, they use that as a, as a weapon to attack others. I think there is concern that the government can kind of be in your bedroom, in your house, telling you what to do, what you can think, what you can say. And I I take what you were saying. I mean, Jordan Peterson's main concern was I don't want the government to compel my speech. I don't want them to tell me what I can and cannot say. I want to have freedoms. I guess I'm not convinced that this amendment was actually going to do what Jordan Peterson thought it would do in that way. But I, I think I understand the fear. And 
I would basically agree that we need to be careful. We don't let the government have too much control over the words that we can use, because historically that has caused uh, big problems. I guess I'm okay, I'm okay when Jordan Peterson nuances it, but I think when people pick up the discussion online, uh, they go too far and use that language as a weapon to weaponize their views. When you guys hear Jordan Peterson use the word Marxist, what you're hearing is him being nervous about government overreach and the conclusions of that. Yeah, I think so. And he's also talking about a way of conceiving the world. See, when you talk to a, a true Marxist, and you'll see this in other disciplines as well, is uh, let's say a classic Marxist talks in terms of class. There's these, these uh, hard and fast class distinctions in culture. And if you try to make an argument against a Marxist saying, I don't know that the world is really that, that way or that simple, or I disagree with this, uh, the type of Marxist he's most frustrated with is the one who says, well, you don't really, the fact that you're arguing with me indicates that you've been co-opted by the other side. You've been co-opted by a capitalist worldview. Therefore, your argument I don't have to take seriously. And when he sees uh, conversations move in that direction, that's one of the things he means by kind of a Marxist way of thinking of things. Uh, he would also throw in deconstructionism in that and postmodernism. Those are the parts of those movements that he's most frustrated with because he's a person who likes to have a conversation about things. And when someone tells him, you can't, your argument doesn't make any sense because you're male or you're capitalist or you're whatever, he thinks that's a great way to begin to eliminate free speech. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. The thing I, for him, I do think he has this whole framework how the world should work, and he sees his ideology as something that's standing apart from what social Marxism is trying to do—the idea of kind of class warfare. He, I think, he sees the logical result of Marxism as being kind of violent revolution, and he's trying to stop people from going in that direction. So he'll use uh, Venezuela as an illustration of the kind of telos of Marxism. So insofar as he's trying to be able to have freedom to speak, freedom to think through things as an individual, picking up on that kind of Western tradition, I think he's actually seen what he's doing as preventing chaos, as preventing revolution and preventing war, which he sees as something like the logical end of Marxism. So I think that's his view. I don't think that that's the view of people on the street. I don't think they hear Jordan Peterson that way. I think people, at least in Canada and from what I've seen in the U.S., see him as essentially saying, get up, put your shoulders straight, be responsible, don't be that 30-year-old whose parents are trying to evict him right now on CNN, um, and be responsible for, for your life. And a lot of young people, young men in particular, love that part of his message. I'm not sure people are really understanding or even interested in his sort of big picture, like Marxist critique. And I think the way that he connects with people as people is, look, you're describing my life perfectly. I'm not where I need to be. My shoulders are slumped. I'm not taking care of myself. I haven't cleaned my room. And he speaks to them and their eyes perk up and they love it. They want someone to speak moral clarity into their lives. And I think you're right to bring up that Marxism aspect, but that's sort of, I just don't think that's the main discussion that people are people who love him are talking about. Maybe it is a little bit among the intellectual people, but not not the 24-year-old who heard him and calls Jordan Peterson his savior. Let's kind of talk about the stuff that's in his book, which, as Mark already mentioned, has been this enormous bestseller. It's called 12 Rules for Life. And Wyatt, if you could just summarize that for us, that would be great. Yeah, so his big picture there is that uh, all of us live in this existence called Being with a capital B, and that involves suffering and chaos. 
And the way to overcome chaos in this life and suffering is essentially to take responsibility, to, in spite of suffering, proceed forward, and then you bring some sort of balance to this chaos. I think that's even, yeah, the, uh, the subtitle for the book is uh, An Antidote to Chaos. So part of that antidote are these 12 rules that he gives. And the rules, honestly, are not these profound rules. They're just, I think a lot of us would say, received wisdom. But the way he argues for it is that we need to get back to this received wisdom to sort of stave off chaos and to overcome the you know, suffering in life. So the rules are simple. Like the, I'll just name the first couple here. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. And I'll do the third one. Make friends with people who want the best for you. So I think that these rules, honestly, most of us would basically affirm. But what he's trying to do is say, look, take individual responsibility, clean your room, get up, get outside, do the hard things in life. And this is the way that you'll overcome the kind of suffering and darkness of life. So his view is a bit, it's a bit nihilistic, actually, although he has a positive spin on nihilism, I guess. Yeah, I think he's a he's a bit of a contradiction there, where he he does emphasize the darkness of human existence and that there there is suffering and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. On the other hand, he says you just have to accept that's part of your life and quit whining about it, and uh, <laughs> essentially try to make the world a better place in your small corner in your small ways. And he actually says at some points, if you do that, the world will become a better place, which is kind of a contradiction to his nihilism, really. At one, right. But, but his point of doing that is that your choice is either to accept to accept the suffering and just be a nihilist and just get mired in your depression or get up and live a, live a meaningful life. Those are your two choices in the world. That's what he thinks anyway. Yeah. So to my mind, he's basically offering salvation without eschatology. Basically you, you make your, you do your best life. Now uh, you overcome suffering by doing as best you can to produce a total good for society by your individual good. So different than that sort of social movement, individuals who are good, collectively will improve society. And this is the best that you can do, so you should do it. And this will stave off chaos and make life bearable. So he's essentially offering the good life, but only in this life. Where I think Christians would say that you want to live the good life now, sure, but that there's eschatology involved. You're moving towards a specific end. I don't really think he has that. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. I don't think that many of people who have listened to this or when you were reading the three chapter headings would, would see that as being all that different from what you would read in a self-help book or watching a motivational speaker. There's plenty of motivational speakers that have big followings, but obviously, again, Jordan Peterson has occupied this like very unique space for himself. And so what is the difference between the message that he's preaching and something that you'd get from something a little bit more, I don't know, mainstream, but before him? Uh, well, it is a self-help book. I mean, I think that's even the category. Yeah, on the back of the book, psychology, self-help. So the difference is he's picked up on a cultural moment where there's this huge 
sort of cultural fight between two opposing views, I think individualism and socialism, especially in Canada. Uh, he has this huge moment where he did that. We talked about the C-16 bill. He had his recent uh, really big YouTube video where he interviewed or he was interviewed by Kathy Newman, which now has almost 10 million views. So I think he's exploded in popularity because of this cultural moment and that his rules are not so much different than like, I don't know, Dr. Phil, but they're given with a lot more moral clarity and a lot more confidence. Today, we're, we love experts. We will listen to you know, PhD researchers. We love that. In politics, we want experts. But when someone is an expert in moral reasoning and tells you what you must do in your own home, we're not used to that at all. In fact, at least in Canada, we don't like that. We say the government cannot say what we do in our own bedroom, in our own house. But Jordan Peterson is saying this is what you must do in your own house. And I think people are a bit shocked that there's someone like him with a moral clarity and boldness to tell them what they must do for themselves, you know, without apologizing for it. And that connects with people. I think there's been a gap left uh, because I think the church hasn't filled it. And I don't think the culture has filled it because we're living you know, in a post-virtue ethics society. So there's no moral clarity and boldness. And he's kind of filling that gap. And people are both shocked and I think like it. I mean, especially young men love it. Here's what I think, but I want to be careful how I say it, because it could come across as not what I mean to communicate, but here's what it is. I think in the last hundred years, there's been some great strides in equipping and empowering women to pursue life in ways they couldn't have in previous centuries. I mean, just the fact in the last few hundred years, women can now vote, work in any job that they want, et cetera, et cetera. But these areas that women have now entered, which is a good thing, by the way, are areas where men traditionally dominated. So I think some men today, not all, but some, feel like they've lost their place in society because they maybe have actually adopted a sort of patriarchal heritage, but they can't actually be patriarchs anymore. It doesn't work that way, or at least it rarely works that way anymore. So they're trying to figure out, okay, so where's my place in society? I don't feel like I can be a, a man anymore. So I think that also explains why... Um, Mark Driscoll was so popular for so many years because he appealed to that same kind of raw, raw, raw patriarchal desire in some but not all men. And I think actually Jordan Peterson accesses those same people and other people too and gives them purpose again by not just going back to those same places in society, but also giving them new, new ways to be a, to be a man in society and to feel fulfilled. So he, he's kind of like the, the secular complementarian giving a positive vision for young men who feel like they don't have a place in society anymore. That's also kind of in contrast to a lot of these other, I, I would say like a cultural reticence to kind of have larger meta narratives or bigger truths that are going on. He's not afraid of casting a, a larger narrative and suggesting that it's universally applicable. Yeah, exactly. He, he does actually have a meta story, but the story is essentially being is suffering, they're to overcome suffering, bring order to chaos, and that's the best you can do. Uh, of course, then he has his whole dream. So part of his, he actually has a theology of dreams, it seems like, where he gets revelation from his dreams, which I think are these Jungian archetypes as well, where he's able to, to cast a universal experience based upon his his dream world, which is sort of a an interesting thing that he does. I'm not sure how to take that, but... <laughs> 
Yeah, I think, and critics rightly point out that when you were, when you're dealing in the area of uh, Jungian archetypes and symbols, uh, and he, yeah, when he interprets his own dreams, I'm sometimes surprised that uh, with the interpretation he comes up with, because because as you as you well know, as a preacher yourself, you can do a lot of things with an image, <laughs> some of it more appropriate than another. He's very creative in that regard. It would be the most uh, charitable thing to say about his use of archetypes. Sometimes, yeah, it's funny. It strikes me as doing what. A lot of people did about 100 years ago, where they went to the Bible, they tried to make it appealing to people. So what they did was they looked at the history and said, well, okay, this kind of, all the historical details are really myths. So if we peel that back, you can look underneath and there's some sort of universal truth and this sort of um, demythologized truth. And if we preach that, that'll actually connect with people in the present. We'll really meet the modern man's you know, needs. Seems to me that he's doing something really, really similar but not from a sort of like biblical theological perspective, but from a sort of social psychological perspective. So, that, you know, I'm, I'm obviously alluding to Rudolf Boltmann and his project. And the critique of Boltmann and the critique of Peterson that I think uh, that I've heard, they're similar and they call him a Gnostic. That's when he becomes more Gnostic. That is to say, the cross is interesting because it's a symbol, not because it actually happened. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think that's a fair critique of, uh, I don't wouldn't necessarily call his old worldview Gnostic, but... He has these Gnostic tendencies that are very much like Boltmann. I mean, I'm assuming Boltmann was able to connect with people. He was so popular. Jordan Peterson is so popular. So they're doing something that connects with people. But I think when you peel back the history from the text of the Bible, at least for Christians, that's very unsatisfying because we believe Jesus rose from the dead. And I think that goes back to Peterson being very here and now. Like, this is the world we're in. Being There's no eschatology. There's not even really, like, creation in his worldview. I mean, I'm sure that he has some view on it, but that's not even that's not important to his kind of ethical or moral reasoning. Wow, that's really crazy to think that you could come up with some sort of like meta narrative though that didn't have something to say about creation and where we come from. Yeah, or where we're and and going to end up. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have that meta narrative. He has a meta narrative of where we are right now. I just think about like how foundational that is for for Christians when they start out. I mean, the idea of the Imago Dei is like a huge starting point in how we think of ourselves as. Not only Christians, obviously, because the Imago Dei is not something that's limited to Christians. It's about how we know who we are as humans and how we know who other people are as humans. Right. And that's kind of where we come out from. So it's fascinating to me to not have that sense of creation. It could be in large part why he has such an emphasis on, on a hierarchy in the animal kingdom, but also in the human kingdom, because we're essentially part of the same biological group. In his book, he has a, a whole section on how lobsters function in a society that's hierarchical, long story short, you have a more powerful lobster who takes over the alpha lobster role, and that helps society to succeed. And he applies that to humanity and makes the point that hier hierarchies are just part of the human condition. So they're not necessarily evil. What becomes evil is when there are there is oppression in these hierarchies. So so he can look at lobsters and look at their biological characteristics and hierarchy and apply that to humanity. But I do think that being created in the image of God adds much more to the story than Jordan Peterson can allow or even has access to, because he doesn't, he doesn't let that be part of the evidence that he uses, creation in the image of God. And I think that's where you need to be a little careful when you hear some of his applications from evolutionary biology. And he would say that these hierarchies, when they, when they work best in evolutionary biology and in nature today, is when... The person who's at the top of the hierarchy is actually not just powerful. He's not. He thinks that's that's a wrong way to think about hierarchies. He thinks they're competent. 
they're skilled uh, they and they are the ones who can best manage the society they're in and when they fail to do that he uses illustrations from the if a chimpanzee uh, head of a chimpanzee clan starts to become too oppressive a couple of his cohorts will just murder him and take over <laughs> so he says as long as they, he remains competent and actually runs the the group well uh that's good but if he becomes incompetent that's what nature's going to do but but you can also see why some conservative people like that because you have this whole deal with like the kind of republican way of life where the people at the top of the food chain the rich people should have lower taxes because they're skilled and they got there by their own efforts and that there will be a trickle-down economy that sort of builds up the rest in this hierarchy. So what he's, I think he's, why some people are attracted to him is because he sort of gives them reasons to continue doing what they're doing. And that's also why some of the, what he would call Marxists, uh, strongly disagree with them because they don't, they don't love that. Yeah, so I wanted to read some of Jordan Peterson's recent tweets, which I think give a little bit of context as to why he, there's many people that he's rubbed the wrong way. So... Here he is. Um, he's quoting this guy named Mark J. Perry, who is an economics professor. And Mark is sharing his research. And he says, more on my efforts to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion and end gen gender discrimination at University of Michigan. So he, Mark tweeted out his links. Jordan Peterson quoted the tweet and says, the universities are committing suicide with amazing rapidity. So suggesting in some ways that Advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion and ending gender discrimination are causing the university's demise. Um, I'm going to read another one. Here's a tweet from Steven Pinker, who is a cognitive scientist at Harvard. And he says, diversity, leadership, and unconscious bias training are useless in reducing the gender pay equity. Um, but reducing subjectivity in hiring, pay, and promotions can help. And Jordan B. Peterson says, they're concepts well employed as ideological weapons. And then one other thing that I wanted to, to read, too, he has one that says, women now occupy the majority of professional and managerial positions, and the majority is in all caps. And I know that some of his comments about women have not been well regarded either. I think behind a lot of what he's saying there is his view on equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity. So he views... The equality of outcome as being not desirable, so that this is when society forces everyone to be equal. But he thinks it is desirable to have equality of opportunity, meaning that everyone has equal opportunity to pursue what they want. So when he talks about women in these jobs and that they have the equal pay wage and all this kind of stuff, or at least in some categories, I think what he's getting at is they actually have equal opportunity, but the reason why they sometimes may not have uh, equal wages because some women choose not to pursue work as an end because they pursue you know, a family or something like that, which brings the average down. So I think behind all that is the equality of outcome versus opportunity paradigm that he likes to use. Because of the, uh, the equality of outcome, again, is a ideological platform of uh, like Stalinist, at least uh, in, its, in its pure form, Marxism, Lenin and Stalin's Marxism. The idea was that everyone would have an equality of outcome, and he, he, he looks at that and he says that was a complete social disaster. We should avoid it. it. Not just a social disaster, it led to violence and needless deaths, millions and millions of deaths. So that helps me understand his visceral reaction to uh, some of these statements. Uh, sometimes his, his arguments as such aren't as strong, 
So I, let's just go back, though, to 100 years ago in Russia, right? I mean, this is his frustration, and I think this is where a lot of the visceral frustration towards Jordan Peterson comes from. I mean, I think everyone in this conversation can agree that the serf and czar system that was going on in Russia was awful, and that many of these serfs lived, you know, very lives of, like, subsistence living, that czars were often corrupt, that they didn't take care of the people, that there was little accountability for serfs to be actually able to organize and to provide for their families in any type of meaningful way. I mean, you can even look at Russian immigration to the United States as an example. And so this idea that because the Bolsheviks wanted to organize, yes, what they led to ended up in the murder. But I don't even hear when I've when I've heard Peterson acknowledge that there were valid reasons about why, you know, the communist revolution took place. In the same way, I don't see him acknowledge that there are real foundational um, and often like deeply systemic reasons that go on, you know, in the United States. And I also know to some extent in Canada as well, and that people have legitimate reasons to be like angry about the things that are going on and that there are some level of like injustice that does have to be fixed and addressed. You know, for instance, dealing with the repercussions of having slavery and bad relationships with Native Americans and First Nation people. I don't think Jordan Peterson would deny systemic injustice. I think what he would do is say, we don't know how to overcome it yet. You go back to that example 100 years ago, there are serfs and unjust rulers. I think he would say that the solution to that real problem was not communism. Like, or that was the solution, but it didn't work. So we're not smart enough as a society to get the answers yet. And if you propose creating it by these social constructs and by law in the way that uh, with that C-16 bill we talked about earlier, then you're, it's a bad solution because it'll create more problems down the road. So I don't think he would deny any kind of systemic injustice or like in the U.S. systemic racism or whatever, but that he would say we, we don't know yet the way to overcome it. And so far, um, I think even that person that you quoted in the, or that Jordan Peterson retweeted or whatever, Steven Pinker, if I understand it, Steven Pinker in that group will actually say that the world we live in now is much better than the world 100 years ago. And that's largely to advances in technology, things that the Enlightenment brought, maybe in part to, due to democracy. And things are actually getting better where, by doing what we're doing now. So if we try to create a solution to a, a real problem in this hierarchy, we actually may impede progress and create violence. So I I think for him, it's he just basically thinks we're not smart enough to figure out the problem or figure out the solution to the problems. Each one of the tweets that Morgan mentioned, I, I can hear an entire lecture on that point. So it's not doesn't seem as unreasonable or uh, knee-jerk reaction as it sounds. But I don't think his best medium is Twitter. I think that's just a terrible medium for him. Even his writing isn't nearly, isn't nearly as engaging as his, as his speaking. But I think you're right about his, his public speaking. People describe him like he's a savior. Like they say, like young men especially say that Jordan Peterson essentially saved their lives. And they're really just monologues, if you think about it. You, you often heard, hear that the monologue is dead. But then you have Google Talks, um, TED Talks, guys like Jordan Peterson, podcasts like the, the Joe Rogan experience that are like two or three hours. And the monologue isn't dead. Just bad monologues are dead. And somehow through his speech, through his communication, through his words, he's reaching the hearts and heads of people and essentially converting them to his way of life. 
Or, or as, as has been the t- testimony of some people, is that it's moved them. The thing that surprises me is I've heard Christians say it's deepened their Christian life, or it has led them to Christianity. I know a church down the road from me. There's people in our church, I don't think they're reading, I don't know, John Piper. They're actually reading Jordan Peterson. That's interesting to think about. Like, he might be more read by, by some of our people in churches than who we would consider the big-name kind of evangelical Christian leaders. I actually can think of a lot of people that are just peripherally connected to the church that I would, in fact, recommend this book for. Uh, again, not as a way for them to become Peterson disciples, but I think the way he talks about these various and sundry issues, it will, it will prompt them to start thinking about the Christian way of looking at the world in a much more serious way. And I think they'll find, because, because I think the Christian worldview has, a, has more hope and is, is more fully orbed than what he has to say, that it wouldn't surprise me if people start with Peterson and go, okay, but where is the end? What's the end game here? And it's, that's where the Christian can come in. And why doesn't he take uh, history as seriously as, as I think it should be taken? In other words, I do think, I think that comment about a gateway drug to, uh, to Christianity is, is not, uh, not unreasonable. And I'm actually thinking, okay, this is the naive optimist in me, that Peterson is on his own journey, and he may end up as a Christian because he's so darn close. Some of his some of his statements and lectures are so close. It's 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 just a thin line. He just has to step over this one line, and he'd be a Christian. But he there was a Washington Post piece with where the two writers who were discussing Jordan Peterson came to the same conclusion that you did. So you're not the only one. Um. I want to point out the obvious in this conversation that both of you are men, and we've acknowledged multiple times in this conversation that Peterson's ideas have landed best to male audience, um, it seems, based on you know the people who are actually in the audience when he goes on tour and the people buying his book as well. And I think for some women out there, they feel really turned off to him. So as we know in this book, 12 Rules for Life, which we've mentioned a couple of times, the subtitle is An Antidote to Chaos. Peterson in the book starts talking about chaos as being this feminine spirit. And so when he's talking from the beginning, he says an antidote to chaos, again, which he defines as the feminine. And there was a recent New York Times profile which described Jordan Peterson as being a custodian of the patriarchy and has some interesting quotes from him. And I realize, again, that maybe both of you will find these out of context to Peterson, but I do think this is how many people are receiving him and kind of finding out about him. So I think it's worth going through them, one of the comments that he says is that the masculine spirit is under assault. It's obvious. Here's another one. You know, you can say, well, isn't it unfortunate that chaos is represented by the feminine? Well, it might be unfortunate, but it doesn't matter because that's how it's represented. It's been represented like that forever. And there are reasons for it. You can't change it. It's not possible. This is underneath everything. If if you change those basic categories, people wouldn't be human anymore. They'd be something else. They'd be transhuman or something. We wouldn't be able to talk to those creatures. And he comes off as, I would say, pretty bombastic in there and unwilling to kind of back down. Well, we disc- we're discussing his book in a theology group I'm a part of. And one of the things we, we discern pretty quickly is that he uses the word chaos in two different senses. So when he's talking about chaos as part of the, uh, the yin and yang of the dual aspects of nature, of just human nature, there's a chaos and there's an order. And chaos, they both need a well-balanced life is one that balances both of those things. We need order, but too much order, we get oppression. The part of chaos that's creative and open to mystery and freedom, we need that. But chaos that leads to just 
indiscriminate killing and confusion and meaninglessness. We don't need that. So that's one sense in which he uses the word chaos. He contrasts it with order, and both are necessary. Then he uses chaos in another sense, just being a, a shorthand term of life just falling apart. So it's only in the former sense, this yin and yang, that he associates it with male and female char- characters. And he does that because that's sort of like the long Chinese history of doing that. I think that's what he's getting at in those quotes. But there is a confusion if you don't understand how he's using that term. Which most people would be confused by. Which most people would be confused But unfortunately, the, the writer of that did not put him into context and didn't even talk about his views on order. Because he thinks, he does, yeah, you, because of the Chinese use the notion of order as being male. He also talks about his big motivation in life is about oppression and totalitarianism. He thinks that's order just gone crazy. So uh, he happens to think the worst problem right now is the temptation toward chaos, but he's certain that both areas need our attention. So why do you feel then that some women feel very put off by Jordan Peterson? Because my guess is that most are not hearing chaos as being feminine and therefore bad. I'm not sure that's really even what he, in his public writing and speaking, talks about. Of course, he does in some of his lectures in his book. But there's got to be other reasons for it, right? I think as as hinted in those tweets, there is, to some extent, um, he seems to push back against efforts that might seem to empower women, at least if he feels like their desires have some sort of Marxist quality to them. I don't want to just like lump everything together or I run the risk of that, but I do know that he has taken stands against identity politics. He's taken stands against white privilege and not to conflate those with gender advancement. But I would say many feminists are also vocal on those issues. Then I imagine if he's offensive in those areas, he would be deemed as offensive in other areas. And I, I do think that without getting too inside baseball into this, some of the individuals that he's chosen to associate with himself with have not necessarily been groups that have been friendly or at least overly trying to like draw in a female audience um, or to to recognize and to see women in those ways. And he's not he's done very little to kind of like separate himself from those figures who may cut a more um, strident profile when it comes to how they treat women. Um, and, and maybe for the same kind of like socioeconomic demographic that he's reaching women who are in that socioeconomic demographic are getting more of the resources that they need or resources that are deliberately targeted to them as women, whereas men who are in the socioeconomic demographic don't feel like they have as many resources. Morgan said earlier is that he's a bit bombastic. So people who are outside of his camp already find it maybe really harder to be harder to be persuaded by him. So if you're, say, a woman who's maybe not already aligned with Jordan Peterson... You just see his talk, I think, as kind of cruel and mean and not something that you want to be associated with. I, I think that's part of it. I'm sure that's part of it, yeah. He's a controversialist. Oh, yeah. The disadvantage of that is you sometimes don't know how serious them to take them in a, in a given statement. The advantage is, is, is it does force you to think about, well, what do I really think about this? Why am I objecting to this? And uh, it's a pedagogical method that various people use, but I don't think, I don't know that it works well in an age of Twitter. I think it might work well in some people, but I think most of us, when we hear a moral argument, we intuit the answer like immediately. We're not, like this is the um, Jonathan Haidt's argument in The Righteous Mind, that most of us are not, you don't hear an argument then just kind of reason through all the points and get to it. You hear a few words and you automatically make a judgment. And later you reason. 
So I think if you're not someone who listens to all of his podcasts or his, his YouTube lectures and you hear sound bites, we're not wired to take that positively. We just hear it, don't like the sound of it, and write him off. And then we create reasons why we don't like him or do like him on the positive side. And that's kind of my worry with Peterson, as I think when he was in the academy, he's writing papers, he's writing books, he's critiqued by his professorial friends. He, he really can't go too far in one direction without being corrected. But now it kind of seems like he's moved to this sort of public intellectual area where he might be kind of on his own. And so a lot of his opinions or his moral judgments, I'm not sure they're being checked in the same way they used to be checked. Or he, kind of academic he might not be as open to listening to the or, checks. Yeah, that could be it. That might be a better way to I say it. I did remember listening to one of the early lectures on the Bible in which he said, well, this is the way the Bible works when it comes to viewing God. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And of course, I winced when I heard him say that. But I do give him credit with a couple lectures later, he said, uh, one of my professors at the uh, University of Toronto heard that and said that was just a boneheaded thing to say. And I, so I apologize. He, he showed me how nuanced that was. I don't know that he would be able to do that now. I don't know. That's what I'm worried about. So he's going to get, if he gets more and more popular, his views become maybe a bit more extreme than they are now. Where most of them I can kind of go along with and appreciate. But if they get more and more extreme, I'm not sure that he'll be making unbiased judgments. I think he'll be making very biased judgments, and he'll be creating reasons why he needs to continue to believe them. Now, I've been in the U.S. for a while, too, and in, we have our different problems. But I think in the U.S. you have this thing where people are just so divided on one of two issues. Like you're either a, a Democrat or a Republican. You're either liberal or conservative. You're either, you know, X or Y, X or Y. And I think I mean, the same thing's true up here in Canada, just to a different degree. And I just feel like that could be what happens, and it's not going to be helpful for society. Everybody's going to be fighting over these, these lines, and no one's going to be listening to each other. It would be ironic if that turns out that way, because his 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 mission seems to be to bring people together to talk, right. talk through their issues. And if he ends up being a figure that actually does the opposite, that would be a, a, a kind of a tragic irony. Power corrupts. <laughs> Power corrupts, but also he's also a human. And humans, when often they get attacked about something, instead of being interested in learning from the person who's attacking them, they often get more defensive about what that is. Well, on that nihilistic note, I guess we'll come to an end. But the Holy Spirit is alive and working to change hearts. <laughs> exactly. Even through people like Jordan Peterson. So even through, through people like Wyatt and Mark Galley. And even Morgan Lee. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for extending that. All right. Well, for all of our listeners, give us feedback. You can do that at CT Podcasts. You can send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share some more, something that is bringing them joy this week. Mark, are you ready to go? Yeah. Part of my activities in the off hours is I'm a landlord, and we're I'm flipping an apartment right now, getting ready for another year for a Wheaton College graduate student and some of his friends. And so I go into the apartment, I touch up the paint. And uh, yesterday I, I put in an overhead uh, fan over the range. And one of the, you know, people ask me, isn't that a lot of work? Do, do you really like doing that? And I'd say, yeah, I do like doing it. As I said, it's just something that is a release from everything I do uh, during the rest of the week. It's concrete, it's manual, something working with my hands. There's something very therapeutic about that. So that was just a good, it was a good weekend. Did a lot of little projects around the, the townhouse that I was renting out. All right. Where can people find you? 
I publish something called The Galley Report. It is found at christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport. It's a weekly newsletter in which I include links and commentary every Friday. All right, your turn, Wyatt. So I have a two-year-old daughter, and I guess I'm a stereotypical dad who loves my little daughter. And on just this little vignette on Sunday, took her out of her, little, her class and said, what'd you learn about? She says, Jesus. And we asked her, okay, what'd you learn about Jesus? And she replies, that Jesus is here like crayon. And I was introduced to her imaginary friend, crayon, who's here like Jesus. So, <laughs> and that's kind of lasted for a while. <laughs> so I guess it's a teaching tool, her imaginary friend. I don't know. How long has crayon been around? Just since Sunday? I discovered her on Sunday. I don't know how long Crayon's been around. Wyatt, are you online? Yes. I run the Gospel Coalition Canada website. You can just Google that. Um, I have a personal site that's wyattgraham.com, and Twitter's Graham. I'd affirm that, too. I'd say that TGC sites in Canada and U.S. produce some great content, and I'd really encourage listeners to take a look at them. All right. My precious moment was watching the Warriors-Rockets game. On Monday, it was a great game. That the one where they came from behind? They did come from behind. They played like trash in the first two quarters. And I just was like laughing at how terrible they were playing and how many turnovers there were. And I was just like, I guess this is over. The end of an era. My friends were definitely more confident in the Warriors' chances than I were, I would just say. And they were like, it's not over. It's not over. Into halftime. And then, of course, as everyone who listens to this podcast will know, by the time they listen to it, the Rockets set an NBA record with 27 consecutive missed three-point shots. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that is, that's, that's almost like divine intervention. That's pretty terrible. Yes, God blocked. <laughs> God was doing the blocking yesterday. So that happened. Actually, there was an anecdote that Steph Curry went back to the locker room and read Philippians 4, 6 through 7. During halftime? During mean? halftime. Oh, gosh. Being anxious and nothing, etc. He read that to the team? You think he read it to himself. And then he had his big, Steph is known for having a really big third quarters and the Warriors in general are known for having a big third quarter. And that's exactly what happened. Anyway, it was an exciting game and it was fun to watch it because I was at a table with all Bay Area people. So we'll see what happens in the finals. Anyway, people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself. Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, among other places. And if you do go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review our podcast there. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.